0: We're programmed for survival, so our instinct is to give up on these situations, to move away from them.
1: I thought if I didn't sign up for that race, that I was
0: just going to disappear. It doesn't have to be these big, huge things that everyone thinks you need to do to make a difference. Wesley's story is nothing short of incredible. He's through-hiked the entire Pacific Crest Trail, all 2,600 miles. He's climbed every mountain in Colorado over 14,000 feet. There's almost 60 of those, by the way. He's done so many incredible things, and the craziest thing is he has cerebral palsy. It's something that should prevent him from doing these things, but obviously it hasn't. So we're going to tell Wesley's story today. We're going to let him tell it and why he loves these mountains, how he's able to do this and some of the challenges he's had to overcome because uh, sometimes cerebral palsy out in the mountains is the least of your worries, let's just put it that way. Uh, but I'm gonna go ahead and tell you, we are skipping a part of this segment the, of the story where it's, uh, it gets kind of dark and um, it's just it's just kind of an intense moment. And if you'd like to watch that or, or hear Wesley tell it in another format through video, go to his website. He made a short film about the experience of climbing all of Colorado's 14,000 foot mountains uh, in a film called Within Weakness, but there's a link right in the show notes for that. But Wesley works for American Hiking Society. It's one of our partners here at Athletic Brewing through our Two for the Trails program. If you don't know, 2% of all the sales of our beer here at Athletic Brewing are donated back to park and trail cleanups, essentially trail-based projects all over the country. So one of our Partners is American Hiking Society. But let me tell you about the grant itself. It's going to be for any organization that is in need of funding of a trail base or outdoor recreation, specifically human powered outdoor recreation, a, a project around that. So this could be everything from infrastructure to trail maintenance to trail construction to, you know, urban parks to bike paths. Like it can be anything. So if you know of anyone in those worlds that, that needs funding for a project, have them apply at our website. The link is in the show notes. Uh, Go to Athletic Brewing, look for Two for the Trails. We are committing $500,000 to distribute between now and and June, which is pretty crazy. So again, if you know of anyone in those worlds, anyone in the outdoor space that has projects to fund or works in it for an organization, have them apply. Uh, We'd love to help them out. So without further ado, here's Wesley's story.
1: Doing well. Thanks for having me, Mason. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, definitely. I always ask this first: Where are you coming from today?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, right now, I am um, on the Front Range of Colorado in a small town called uh, Fluorescent.
0: Fluorescent. All right. Yeah, I'm familiar with that. Used to be. That's uh, that's awesome, man. So, um, just tell us a little bit about you know where you grew up. You're a native to Colorado, right?
1: Yeah, um, I grew up um, in Colorado. My family, my mom's side of the family has been around for several generations. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I grew up in the small town of Littleland Park, not too far from where I currently uh, live. Um, and kind of through that experience, you know, I had lots of access to the outdoors. So I felt very uh, privileged to be able to have um, some amazing trails and mountains uh, within short drives of where I grew up
0: you know, these mountains, these amazing places are kind of your backyard. Did, did they feel like something that was, you know, accessible as a kid? Because I, you know, I lived in Denver for a while and there were, there was those kind of those folks in town, in the city that, that didn't get out there much. I mean, my wife's an elementary school teacher and like half the kids don't ever go to the mountains. What, what was your family like?
1: Yeah. So I grew up in a family that was uh, very outdoorsy. Um, in fact, um, I like to tell the story that uh, my parents carried me up my first uh, 14,000 foot peak when I was just a toddler. Um, they uh, carried me up um, to the top of Mount Yale. And I you know, like to consider that my very first um, uh, adventure um, above treeline and kind of set the trajectory for, for the rest of my life.
0: Oh, my gosh. So, so you came from an adventurous family. I mean, I'm sure you don't remember that experience because you were so young, but they that that obviously made an impact on you. That's really cool.
1: Yeah, I definitely don't remember it. Um, I've only seen a handful of old, um, film photos of kind of that trip, so don't remember that. But then, you know, just spending, um, summers in the mountains a lot of times. And, uh, uh, when I was in, uh, ninth or excuse me, when I was nine, um, my parents and my sister and I climbed um, our first 14er as a family. Uh, which was uh, Mount Princeton, which was a very incredible experience, um, especially for me. Um, So a little bit of my backstory, Um, I I was born with a mild form of uh, cerebral palsy that kind of limits uh, my fine motor control and uh, just coordination on the right half of my body. Um, And so making it to the top of uh, uh, Mount Princeton and that experience, I think, was a really – empowering experience that has kind of in many ways also kind of set the trajectory for where I've gone in, in life.
0: So your, your cerebral palsy was, was evident pretty early on. Like it was, you know, I know it smiled, like you said, but it's, uh, it was showing itself and you had to deal with it from the beginning. And so climbing that mountain so young was like a huge, a huge boost for you. I'm sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, growing up, you know, trying to do like the typical like physical activities, like even small things like like learning to tie my shoes, um, you know, playing sports and PE or doing, um, you know, like T-ball or any type of uh, recreation sports. Like those things were always a challenge for me. And not Princeton was, was definitely a challenge, um, but it was something that I could do and kind of felt um like I wasn't around a lot of kids, so I didn't feel like I was being uh, judged or uh, I'm not saying that kids a lot of times judge me per se, but um, you know, you know, just when people are like looking um, at you and you just know that they know that you know that you're different. And uh, so kind of being in the, um, the back country away from other kids or just other people in general was um, a relief and kind of allowed me to kind of find um, who I am as an individual.
0: It was that time in nature, man. That is, that is powerful stuff. So you climbed that first mountain, you felt super empowered, realized what you could do. How did it grow from there? Were were you, you know, hooked in the outdoors? Were you doing other things? What was the trajectory that you were talking about earlier?
1: Yeah. So, um, a number of years there was a couple of years between my first 14 and, and the second group of 14 ers that I climbed, uh, when I was a little bit older, um, two years older. Uh, and, uh, that experience getting above tree line, I kind of, uh, got into this groove, um, that, I've, that I had never experienced before of kind of feeling like I was doing some, like doing really well at something that I didn't anticipate being, uh, feeling comfortable with. And yeah, so, you know, I, I would say at age 11, realizing that I felt felt kind of like my fullest potential when I was above tree line, which was kind of an interesting experience to have. And so, you know, from there, it was just a matter of, you know, my family doing uh, my family or or my dad and I, you know, setting out on different 14 year adventures um, for um, for, from year to year, mostly climbing just obviously uh, in the, the summertime. And then, it was in kind of the uh, my high school years, sometime in the high school years, I kind of realized that I, w- I wanted to set like the goal of climbing all, there's 54, um, or 58, um, 14 fourteeners, depending on who you ask, uh, in Colorado. And so I kind of set that goal. Sometime when I was in high school, I don't have a specific date for when I decided I wanted to do it. And so started to just kind of continue to Work on some of these different uh, fourteen thousand foot peaks, which became a major part of my story. Along the way, after graduating high school, my dad and I were coming down off of relatively challenging peak called uh, Creestone Needle, and we were coming down, and uh, we came across a trail crew that was uh, working on some uh, kind of the lower section of the trail, and we started talking with them and realized that they were college age students um, out doing trail work for the summer. Um, and that that interaction was also a key um, experience in my life of having that conversation and realizing that regular people could do trail work. Because before that, I'd never thought too much. I assumed that, you know, the government, you know, paid um, people to go out and make trails. And I had never really thought too much about it. But seeing those kind of young, younger kids—I mean, they were older than I was at the time—doing that that trail work really uh, inspired me. So when I went to college, I applied for a, to work for a trail crew with uh, Rocky Mountain Youth Corps. I was wasn't sure like what uh, how that experience would turn out. I wasn't even sure that uh, RMYC would give me a call back because you know, with someone with cerebral palsy trying to do physical. Uh, labor in kind of high alpine conditions isn't uh, something that most people think of, but luckily they hired me, and I I was thrilled about the experience. And so I went back um, all four years during school um, to to do trail work across uh, the Rocky Mountains.
0: So giving back to the trails was was it was an early passion for you. Now you do it for a career. Yeah. What? So those experiences, what did that start leading you into doing that trail work over the summer?
1: Yeah. So I think it really opened my eye to just doing conservation work as a whole, which definitely led me you know, to where I am at now with American Hiking Society, um, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit. Um, but also, um, so kind of that experience, I realized of giving back to trails and, and building things that would last longer than my lifetime and really Kind of understanding that um, that legacy of kind of leaving uh, the places I love uh, better than than they were when I w- was there was something that I became a passion for me and it's something that I'm um, really excited about right now you know there's uh, you know there's more than four uh, 48 million people in the u.s that go out for hikes each year um, and yet only a small fraction of those people do trail service. Um, and so I'm really passionate about sharing my story to get people to consider, you know, giving back, uh, to, uh, the trails and the wild places that they love to recreate. in.
0: so that's something we, we talk about a lot here at athletic is, is making it better, take care of these places that, that we enjoy. Um, but, but I'd love to ask you about, uh, your, 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 um, the 54, uh, 14ers that you climbed w- when did it become apparent to you that you wanted to do them all um if you don't mind me asking about this by the way I'd love to I'd love to talk about that story of of doing them all
1: yeah uh so yeah it was literally almost a two decade project um if you consider my you know when I first started climbing 14ers when I was 9 um so it took almost two decades to complete the project um, it wasn't until high school that I realized that I wanted to take on the whole the whole list, partly because I knew there were a few uh, difficult peaks. Um, and for those people who don't know, um, of the 54 uh, 14ers, about two-thirds of them um, are mostly just hiking trails. In kind of the mountaineering world and climbing world, uh, there's a classification system that goes from one to five, So one is just simple like hiking on trails and then class five is like technical, like vertical climbing. And so about two thirds of the 14ers kind of fall in the class one and two categories. Um, And then there's, you know, that other third that are class three and four um, which require more scrambling. You're using all four um, uh, you're on all four for different times Um, really have to kind of, be careful monitoring uh, the risk of falling and things along those lines. Um, so it wasn't until like high school uh, timeframe um, that I began to get into a few of the more difficult ones to realize that like I felt comfortable enough, though it was a very slow process to kind of build um, up enough experience to feel comfortable. in. Uh, for me, especially with kind of, uh, my lack of coordination and lack of strength on the right side of my body, um, building that confidence took a, a lot of time. So in, my, in high school, I was able to do a couple of the, the class three peaks and realized, okay, I think I think I have what it takes um, as long as I take it slow and and try to uh, mitigate the, the inherent risks of mountaineering with cerebral palsy um, and kind of began uh focusing on climbing the 14 years so every summer my dad and I would would plan to climb a few um, and there'd be a few years that um, that I wouldn't get to any because I was doing um, other trips or um, other um, adventures so I took a few years off to do some some long distance hiking and so you know that added to just the overall length of, of the project taking more time since I wasn't you know I wasn't you know some people are really dedicated to like knocking off um you know some of them some people do all 54 in just one summer um or shorter periods of time um but for me it was just kind of um like I would do them when I could and I really enjoyed doing most of them uh with my father in most cases um as well so yeah that was kind of what the project the what the overall project looked like for me
0: absolutely Incredible achievement. I know there's a small or short documentary folks can watch about it. And we're going to plug all that. And, uh, and also that your most recent uh, documentary about finishing the 54 14ers. Do you want to tell that story about, about finishing and what that was like and getting to the last peak on the Maroon Bells?
1: Yeah. So in terms of the 14er project, um, I had basically, before I set off on uh, the Pacific Crest Trail, I had done 50 of the 54 peaks that I was kind of going for. Yeah, I was almost done. Uh, and then I came back from the PCT hoping, you know, in the next year or two that I would be able to, uh, to tackle those last four, uh, 14ers. And just due to just the way life was going for me, I didn't have the opportunity for a couple of years to, to, to tackle a couple of them. And so. Um, I was able to, to knock out uh, all like all of them, but the last two, which were uh, the maroon bells, which are two of the more technical uh, and more difficult um, and dangerous fourteeners. After a number of years of like uh, having bad like scheduling a trip and having bad weather, um, basically changed my plans um, with my dad, um, in 2016, uh, my dad and I had several weeks blocked out on our calendar to to make the climb, and uh, my dad that summer was having some hip issues, and he let me know that he just wouldn't be able to to safely do the bells, uh, which kind of devastated me because I was really hoping to finish uh, the 14 fourteeners uh, with my father. I thought that would be a great way to finish it. Totally. And so I was I was hoping to uh, I I'd thought about like waiting another year and trying to do them with my father, but at the same time since my since my dad's hip was um, kind of giving him problems, I wasn't sure if um, he would be up for it uh, the following year either. Um, there was like no guarantee that, he, that he, would, he would want to do that. And so I decided to put out a request um, on a local climbing forum to see if anyone would be interested in, in doing the 14er with me. Um, and there was a couple of people who expressed interest. Um, and I talked to several of them on the phone and, connected with a, a guy named Steve. And uh, Steve had done all the 14ers, uh, most of them multiple times. And uh, um, he had led uh, several trips with the Colorado Mountain Club up the Maroon Bells and had done the Traverse. There's what's called the Traverse between North Maroon and, and Maroon Peak. That is a uh, class four, like nearly technical um traverse um in fact I, I think some people even rank it as a uh, class five uh, technical traverse um that he had done uh twice before um so he had like lots of experience and i felt really com- comfortable um connecting with him and uh setting out to do the 14ers with someone who uh had done them because route finding on those on the moon bells is tricky because it's very rotten rock and karen's kind of Disappear and corrode, which are um, a wayfinding uh, device on uh, alpine terrain, and and so I was just pretty excited um, to connect with Steve. And um, just a few days after we connected on the phone, we we rendezvoused in uh, uh, in near Aspen at a campground just outside uh, um, from where the uh, maroon bells were or are, <laughs> and uh, we set up the, the the next morning to do uh, Maroon Peak, uh, which was an amazing experience. I had been up uh, Maroon Peak once before. I had made it to thirteen thousand feet, a little over thirteen thousand feet, with my dad uh, a number of years before, but just had bad weather, and so we turned around. And so um, we made it to kind of the more technical section, and uh, Steve and I were just in the zone. Uh, for those people who haven't been um, above treeline or kind of in a very um, sh- uh, class 3 or Class 4 experience about Freeline, um, it's, it, it, make, it puts you in the moment. You can't really be thinking about the future or the past. Uh, you really have to focus on what you're doing, where you're putting your hands and feet, and making sure you're not knocking uh, loose rocks down onto other climbers or whatnot. So we were definitely in, in the zone for uh, most of that climb and made it to the top of uh, Maroon Peak and discussed um, what we had discussed before about if, if, we were, if we both felt that we were kind of at the peak of our ability or feeling really good about it, that we would uh, consider doing the traverse. And so we had talked about it um, and we decided to do the traverse um, Which is very committing because, like, basically, once you commit to the traverse, there's no turning back. Um, You basically, it's kind of a one-way trip, so to speak, uh, just because there's not um, places to escape from the route because it is so technical and and a lot of cliffs and loose terrain. Um, So we committed to that. Yeah,
0: for those listening, it's like a knife edge between the two peaks that you have to, to get. It's like a bridge, but it's a very dangerous, narrow, rocky path from one peak to the other. And like you said, once you commit, it's impossible nearly to turn back.
1: Yeah. And, and so like that, that like thought definitely kind of turned to my stomach a little bit, knowing I was going to be facing some of the most challenging train I had faced on, on my entire 14 year project. Mm. Um, but I felt confident in, you know, in my overall experience that I would be able to do it. And with Steve's ability to do route finding, um, I thought, um, it would be a great way, like it would be an amazing way to end the project um, to, to do both the bells in a single day. And so we, we pushed on and, and the traverse was, uh, I felt like Steve definitely uh, underplayed his description of the route that he'd done before because it was definitely a lot of loose ledges and kind of scrambling up different cliff bands. Um, and it was, it took, uh, the maroon bells are only about a quarter mile as the crow flies, um, but it took us, uh, like, I think about three, more than three hours, I believe to make, make that quarter mile trip because of the train is just so, um, so steep. Um, and, and the route finding is, uh, a challenge. You you might go up a certain gully or across the, a rocky ledge and then get cliffed out and then have to backtrack, um, to, to make, to, to find a, a route that was not, uh, technical. Um, and so we made it to the top of North Maroon, which, as as you can imagine, was um, pretty emotional for me to to finish my 54-14er project on North Maroon. Um, so we took some pictures, um, but then pretty quickly realized, like, we needed to start heading down because we only had three or four hours of daylight left. And we wanted to be off the steep um, terrain before the sun went down. And so we started going down. Uh, and north maroon has is uh, ha, is considered a class 4 uh climb uh the peak we went up is class 3 so we were going up or we went up a slightly easier section and then we're going down um a more difficult stretch and so you know we we're taking our time going down these kind of loose gullies um and things were going uh well and kind of um, looking forward to getting back down to just the regular trail, and we were getting close to the uh, the bottom of uh, of kind of the technical or uh, not technical climb. So, the scrambling sections. We had one last down climb to get back down to just where where the regular trail was. Unfortunately, on that down climb, I went down this uh, it's a pretty short cliff section that I went down. I was standing on, you know, what a a regular hiking trail basically at that point. Um, and unfortunately, um, when Steve was coming down, he kind of lost his footing and, uh, tumbled down that section, um, out of my sight. And uh, at that point, I realized that, uh, the experience was quickly changing into, into kind of a traumatic experience that, that this was no longer just a regular day in the mountains. That um, that things, yeah, things progressed uh, very quickly out of our control.
0: All right. So here is where the story actually takes a pretty crazy turn. Uh, it's something we didn't want to include in this episode. One, it's just uh, it's just not what we're doing here. Um, two, uh, I encourage you to let Wesley really tell the story in the way he, it's meant to be told. Um, at his website, uh, he has a video about the experience where you can see like. You know, videos from the hike and how beautiful it was, but also he tells uh, what just happened here um, in a little more detail. But if you if you want to watch that, there's a link in the show notes that goes right to his website, it takes you right to the video. You can watch it there, but we're going to skip ahead. Just just wild experience, man. What what do you think the whole experience of doing all the 14ers and and how it ended and how you've processed that? What has that taught you about life? What what do you think the biggest lesson has been or one of them
1: yeah that's a great question mason um yeah I, I feel like i've learned quite a bit um about myself and just um learning to cope and adapt to uh cerebral palsy um you know sometimes like when i'm up in the mountains i i feel like you know, sometimes I ask myself if it's foolish to be up there, like doing what I'm doing uh, with cerebral palsy, because there is inherent risk with that. Um, but for me, you know, going back to that sense that I feel most alive when I'm above tree line is what kind of draws me to these experiences. But also realizing um, being okay with, uh, with my weakness um, and with my disability um, and embracing that, I think has been an interesting experience because I feel like we live in a culture that is averse to weakness. We always want to talk about sh- our strengths and we always want to, you know, we talk about pushing through to, to, to achieve things. But I think for me, I think there, the title of the, the video within weakness kind of encompasses, I feel like the lesson that I want to share with people that, um, that I think it's okay to like embrace our weakness because I think uh, you know I think there's an interesting dichotomy or a paradox so to speak um, between strength and weakness. That sometimes uh, within weakness, I think we can find great strength that is within ourselves and ex- and external to us as individuals. Um, and sometimes you know same thing with uh, strength. Sometimes uh, when we live within our strengths, uh, those strengths can easily kind of become hindrances or weaknesses. Um, and so for me, it, it was kind of embracing that idea that um, that it's okay if I uh, don't always have what it takes. Um, that I can find uh, strength and I can find um, contentment with like who I am as an individual and, and my identity, um, and realizing that the outcomes of these accomplishments isn't um, based on or my identity. My identity isn't uh, confined to to my, uh, disability, but it's also not, uh, defined, uh, by my accomplishments. And so I think just like living within that of, uh, finding the joy of being out there and kind of embracing kind of those weaknesses and that struggle, um, I think is something that I've, something that I'm sure I'll continue to kind of work on and, and explore, uh, for the rest of my life. Um, but it's something that I think people, I don't know, sometimes overlook that, you know, sometimes we only want to put our best foot forward, and we only want to—we only want people to see us in our best uh, state. And uh, yeah, I think that's the takeaway.
0: What do you think? you the biggest misconception folks have about about cerebral palsy and living with it.
1: Um, that's another great question, Mason. Um, I think I think a lot of times, you know, people tend to. To like look down on on people with disabilities in certain ways, maybe not, maybe not in a like negative way, um, and and even in myself, sometimes I'm like I play like the what if game of like oh like what if I didn't have cerebral palsy like if I can do the 14-ers with CP like what would I be or the PCT with CP what could I do without C without without cerebral palsy and and I have to like kind of catch myself and not. Um, not allow my mind to kind of play those what-ifs because I don't think it's always uh, positive uh, to 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 do that for just my mental state. But I think I think the misconception is that that there is like a lot of like opportunities that we miss or or don't get to experience. Um, and you know some of our experiences, people with disabilities, like our experiences can be different but we can still have very rich and fulfilling experiences. And, you know, I think for, for my journey, and I know other people with disabilities that I've talked with would say the same thing that um, in some ways the disability has enriched our experience and and our stories. Um, in my case, it's definitely something that has enriched uh, my overall story.
0: Absolutely. And you can't play those what if games. I, I used to play basketball and, I'm tall, you know, people always said, man, if I was tall as you, I'd be in the NBA. And I was like, well, if I was fast as you, I'd be in the NBA because <laughs> I'm tall and slow. You're you're short and fast. I mean, we all have our strengths and weaknesses. We can play the what if game to the nth degree if we want to. So there, it's futile. I think it's futile. But uh So, so before we jump into rapid fire, Wesley, I'd love to ask you, um, just a little bit about, you know, folks know about our two for the trail program. They hear about it. They know that we do, you know, we were doing cleanup events and trail work days, obviously, you know, 2020 happened. Tell us about, you know, you're, you're one of our partners at American hiking society. Tell us about what you do there and and what American hiking society does. Then we'll get into rapid fire.
1: Sounds great. Yeah, so American Hiking Society um, has been around for more than 40 years at this point. Um, And our mission is to empower all to um, enjoy, share, and preserve the hiking experience. How we work on achieving our mission kind of plays out in a variety of ways. Uh, One of those ways um, is through advocacy work. Um, We're based in DC and have always been based in DC because we do, uh, we work with the federal land managers and Congress when it comes to um, public uh, policy and legislation that affects um, hiking trails in public lands. So we're always uh, on the hill advocating for funding um, and for the preservation of public lands. So in in addition to kind of the advocacy side of things, we also do a variety of of stewardship work. Um, We have a variety of of stewardship trail service uh, programs, um, including... Uh, volunteer vacations and alternative breaks, which are uh, week-long trail service trips that take place all across the country Um, in most years. uh, Last year, due to COVID, and this year with COVID, we're somewhat limited in where we can go and what we can do this year. But in in normal years, we'll do trips everywhere from Alaska to the Virgin Islands uh, and do those with college students for for our alternative break program. And then Uh, with um, mostly adults in the volunteer vacations program, um, as well as our flagship program of National Trails Day, which takes place every year on the first Saturday of June. Um, And and there's more than 1,000 of of events all across the country um, in all 50 states. And about a quarter of those events are uh, stewardship-based, so designed to get people out to give back and, and do trail maintenance or build new trails. Um, and so those are our kind of key programs, and we have a variety of other kind of smaller programs. But that's kind of the thirty thousand foot view of what um, AHS does. And so it's great to have um, partners like Athletic Brewing um, that that want to give back to the to the places that so many people love to recreate. So we r- really do appreciate Athletic Brewing's uh, sponsorship and uh, the work that that you guys allow us to do. And. You know, we had a lot of awesome plans uh, in mind for 2020 that didn't that didn't work out due to COVID and, and other sh- uh, circumstances. But we're definitely looking forward to um, getting back out there um, to host more more trips and yeah, continue to do uh, the work on the trails in addition to the continual work that we do uh, through advocacy uh, on the hill.
0: You know, as cool as it would have been to do things together this year, we're still happy to just, you know, that that's, that's cher- the cherry on top, honestly. Uh, it, you know, it, the fact that we get to help is, you know, just making beer, making non-alcoholic beer, we can help trails. Like, how crazy is that? And that's just because we're helping folks like you do what you do, um, and we're going to keep doing what we do. So if we're able to do something this year, that's going to be, that's just the cherry on top, man. Um, and just sure. a quick side story. I actually learned about American Hiking Society way back in the day. i was in I was in high school, and I saw a, an advertisement, not an advertisement. It was on the news about doing the alternative break program in college students where snow, uh, they were like shoveling snow at the Grand Canyon. And I my mind was totally blown because one, I didn't realize you could do this for uh, for spring break. and two, I had no idea that it snowed at the Grand Canyon because <laughs> I'm, <from, laughs> I'm from, you know, Florida. They, we, don't, we don't even know where snow is. You know, we just know it's up north somewhere. And I was like, the Grand Canyon's in the desert. How is it snowing there? And how is there feet of snow? But sure enough, um, little did I know all this stuff existed. But that was just a quick, quick anecdote. But that's where I awesome. learned about American Hiking Society. But yeah, let's jump right into rapid fire. Sounds great. Perfect. All right. Rapid fire number one. Uh, what is your biggest goal not yet achieved?
1: I I, I would love to do a, a through hike of some kind with my with my daughter at some point.
0: Oh, it's all, how old is she?
1: Uh, she's three now, so we have okay. <laughs> yeah. many years to go before before we're ready for a through hike. So you Bye. can
0: plan it. You got time to plan.
1: Yes, we have time to plan.
0: That is awesome. It, it, do, you, do you have a life motto of any sort or anything you, you try to keep in the front of your mind on a daily basis?
1: Uh, not really. You know, really trying to focus on just um, loving my family well, I think, is is, is key. And, and kind of everything else kind of needs to, to work into that somehow. And so, uh, yeah, I would love to do a thru-hike with my daughter. But, you know, if she's not into hiking or whatnot, I'm sure there will be other ways that we we can connect Um, and that I can, uh, make sure that, that we have, um, awesome experiences together.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Um, is there, is there anything you like to do on a daily basis that helps you, you know, stay on task or be the most effective, efficient person you can?
1: Yeah. Uh, getting outside, um, you know, uh, being able, like, even if it's just for like 20 or 30 minutes, um, I realize that like the amount of stress um, and anxiety to normal day life, especially during COVID and 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 whatnot, um, being able to get outside, even if it's just a walk around the block, um, really helps helps me stay uh, stable. If I go too long without um, without getting outside, um, I I just uh, d- don't perform well at work or or do well with my family.
0: I couldn't agree more. What would you say your proudest achievement is outside of, outside of hiking and climbing?
1: <laughs> uh, great question. I don't know if it's related, but uh, I've done a couple of, of it's not exact, it's not hiking, it is hiking related, but um, building a section of the Continental Divide Trail is something that I'm super excited that people will be using that trail for, for decades and hopefully centuries to come. Um, and you know, I had, uh, uh, an impact on that. And so that's something, um, that I'm very uh, proud of.
0: That is too cool. Maybe we can join, uh, American Hiking Society out someday to, to, to help finish a trail of some sort. We'll see. Uh, yeah. Sounds awesome. good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so to wrap this all up, uh, you know, our, our motto at Athletic Brewing is brew without compromise, And what we've realized is in order to do that, we have to live without compromise. You can't just, you know, it's got to be who you are, not just something you do as a nine to five. Uh, What would, what, what is it to you to live without compromise? What does it mean to you?
1: Great question. I think the biggest part of that is loving uh, people and yourself well, to be able to do that is important. Uh, in order to live a life uh, that isn't compromised.
0: Great answer. Well, Wesley, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for uh, just the continued support at American Hiking Society. And I'm really looking forward to uh, many projects and, and, and things that we'll be able to do together once this world opens up. But in the meantime, I'm glad that nature is getting um, getting the attention from y'all and getting uh, getting a little break from folks and uh yeah it's always going to be there you know nature isn't canceled
1: (laughs) thanks again for uh having us and you know we appreciate all that you guys do for your uh, two for the trail program
0: All right, folks, you can find out more about Wesley uh, in the show notes. There's a few links and also more about our Two for the Trails program uh, at athleticbrewing.com slash pages slash Two for the Trails. That's also in the show notes. Anyone you know, have them apply if they have a trail-based project they need funding for because we're giving away half a million dollars before, before the summer. So let's find a good home for it.